nearby. And so our goal this morning is, as we equip ourselves as God's people, to also be people of healing, to be people of healing on this issue. So I want you to just pray, maybe silently, that the healing hands of Jesus will be near us today as we look at the issue, the problem of sexuality. So what is the issue? What is the defeater? Well, here's how it goes. You've probably heard this before. People will say, Christianity and the Bible and Christians are anti-gay. Therefore, because of my identity as a gay person, Christians want to restrain me from happiness and from fulfillment. And also, Christians and the church have been largely responsible for the suffering and the derision that I endure as a gay person. Therefore, I want nothing to do with Christianity. I want nothing to do with a religion or a group of people that tell me that my very identity is wrong or sinful or displeasing to God. And to top it all off, if God is like that, then I don't want anything to do with God either. Unquestionably, unquestionably, if you have friends or family or coworkers or neighbors who aren't followers of Jesus, which I hope you do, this is a defeater. This is a defeater for them. So how do we, if we're Christians, address this? Uh, Listen, it's really hard, okay? It's just really hard. Uh, The culture war days on this issue, they're over. You just need to know that. They're over. There's no longer a culture war on this issue. The culture has decided on this issue, and to say that homosexual practice is sinful is to take a radically, a radically countercultural stance in our world today. So, Here's how I want to orient us just to get going. There's four approaches, really, four different approaches that have developed by Christians in response to this new cultural situation. I'm going to give you those four approaches real quickly, and then we're going to look at these texts together. So one approach is to ignore. Some believers ignore the Bible's teaching on this topic, or they'll just say the Bible was wrong. The Bible was wrong, and we've moved forward in our our progressiveness and our trajectory to a new understanding of human sexuality. Now, we're not going to take that that stand here today because we believe the Bible's not wrong about anything. That's a different sermon for a different day. So you'll just have to let me say that and assume that this morning. A second attempt or approach is to attempt to harmonize. To attempt to harmonize the Bible's view on sexuality with the current cultural view of it. Many um, mainline Christian denominations do just that. They attempt to harmonize what the Bible teaches and what our culture now believes. I think that that, frankly, is an exercise in futility. A third approach is to affirm the Bible's teaching on human sexuality, hetero or homosexuality, but to fail in our implementation of that teaching, both in the way we think about and treat homosexual people and in the way we think about it in our own lives. And then a fourth approach is to affirm the Bible's teaching on sexuality and to faithfully implement that teaching in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors and our friends. That's the approach that we want to take here. That's the approach that we believe is most faithful, most winsome, and most missional because it's actually the approach that Jesus takes. And so there's a lot to be said here. And so what I want to do is make three fairly general points this morning. Three fairly general points, all touching on this defeater, and hopefully um, providing us with some categories for discussing this with our friends 
and thinking rightly about it ourselves. Now, a lot of you are probably going to disagree with some of what I have to say, and you know what? That's okay. I'd love to talk to you more about it. Seriously, have lunch with me. Have coffee with me. Send me an email. Um, We don't have time to dig into all of this this morning, obviously, but part of the purpose of this series is to generate discussion. And so all these uh, points stem from the teaching of Jesus himself, from these passages that Sam read for us. And here's the three ideas that I want to look over with you. First, we are all sexually broken. Second, Jesus defines what marriage is, not us. And then lastly, the cost of following Jesus is infinitely worth it. First, Matthew 15, verses 19 and 20. We are all sexually broken. Now, in these verses, um, as he often does, Jesus is speaking with the Pharisees and the scribes. These were the, the conservative religious establishment of his day in the Jewish world. And as you may know, the Pharisees had a very strong doctrine of sin. They believed in human sinfulness, but their doctrine of sin was skewed in one very significant way. Pharisees, religious authorities, scribes, in Jesus' day believed that sin was something out there. And if you could avoid the bad stuff out there, you could by and large avoid sin. Sin was like a contagion or a virus And you just had to avoid what would infect you or stain you with the virus. That was the traditional Jewish belief when Jesus lived. And so Jesus here and elsewhere says something that devastated them. Jesus agrees with the Pharisees that spiritual sickness is a real thing. He agrees that sin, as the Bible calls it, is a real thing. But Jesus disagrees with the Pharisees concerning where it comes from. In these verses, Jesus says... The problem is not out there. The problem is not out there. The problem is in here. Look at what he says. Out of the heart. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So listen, the clear teaching of Jesus is that sin is not ever something out there to be avoided. Sin, rather, is something inside of all of us that needs to be acknowledged and confessed. Now, this is radical stuff from Jesus. Really, what he's saying, to put it very bluntly, is that we are worse than we think. We're worse than we think, and our biggest problem is within, not without. Now, notice those verses again. One of the categories of inner brokenness of our own sinful hearts that Jesus mentions is sexual immorality. Now, I've talked about this word before. You might not have heard me say it, but the word here translated sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. It might sound familiar because it's where we get our word pornography from. And porneia is what I call a junk drawer term. It's a junk junk drawer term. It refers to any sort of sexual behavior outside of heterosexual marriage. That's just, if words have any meaning, that's what that word means. That's what it means. Uh, So it refers to sex before marriage. It refers to prostitution. It refers to pornography. It refers to adultery. And it refers to any same-sex sexual behavior, to homosexual practice between men or women. Jesus is here saying that any sexual behavior outside of heterosexual marriage is a part of our heart problem. It's sinful. That's not the only thing that's sinful. It's not the only thing Jesus mentions here. But it is, he says, a part of what is sinful. Now, it's not me saying this. 
It's not the church saying this. It's not something called Christianity saying this. This is Jesus, okay? Jesus here and everywhere he teaches on this topic makes it very clear. And so an aspect of our inner broken disposition is that we are all culpable when it comes to sexual immorality. Now, I want to apply this teaching of Jesus in two ways, okay? First, this teaching, just like it devastated the Pharisees in the first century, devastates many people today. But it devastates us for a different reason, I think. Many people in our culture, uh, and maybe many of us here this morning, believe deep down that if you want fulfillment, if you want to be happy, then the main way to do that is to discover the real you, okay? Uh, To discover your most authentic self. If you want to flourish, then you must look deep inside your heart and discover who you truly are and embrace that and express that and be that. Maybe one way to put that is that our world believes that the key to personal fulfillment is authenticity. Now, Jesus is not against authenticity, and I'm not against authenticity, but Jesus isn't saying that authenticity is the key to fulfillment. That's what our world says, though. Virtually every Disney movie in the past, well, ever, is basically making that point. I mean, think about Frozen. Don't let them in. Don't let them see the kind of girl, or be the good girl you always have to be. I don't know this, but all the girls know it. Conceal. Don't feel. Don't let them know. Well, now they know. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Couldn't resist. Thank you. Thank you. Laura, we don't need you anymore. Now, um, authenticity is not bad. Jesus is not saying that we should build false selves here. But the bedrock issue of our world, the bedrock message our world delivers today is that the solution, listen, the solution for our own brokenness and our own angst is found deep within ourselves when we discover who we are. But Jesus says that the cause, the cause of our brokenness and angst is found deep within ourselves. The solution is not in our hearts. The problem The problem is in our hearts. That's exactly where we're not right. All of these examples that Jesus gives are what our hearts are really like. And so the main thing that we need is not to really discover our real selves and leave it there. The main thing we need is to discover our real selves, realize that we actually are broken and receive the free grace of God given to us in Jesus, which works in our hearts from the inside out. That's why Jesus is so concerned to change our hearts. That's why when he he approaches a paralytic, the first thing he does is not make this man walk, although he can, but he says, your sins are forgiven because the main problem is within us. And so the main solution is healing from inside out, which only the gospel can bring. That's one piece of application that I think is important. And here's the second piece. The people who need to hear Jesus' words here more than anyone else are conservative Christians. You and me. Why? Here's why. Um, We have failed to see our own inner sexual brokenness way too often and have fixated on the brokenness of others, especially the gay community. Um, I was talking with a friend this week 
who's a pastor in another church, and they've had a same-sex attracted person visiting their church and attending their church, and this person has been very open with his struggles with same-sex attraction and homosexuality, and he's said he wants to join a small group, and so he joined a small group in this church, and the small group leader, the small group leader said, you know, we really don't agree with your lifestyle, but you're welcome to come to our group. Now, think about that with me. Imagine a really greedy person who's very ostentatious in the way he dresses and drives a really expensive car and doesn't give away any money but holds it all very tightly to himself, came to a small group. Do Christians say, you know, we don't agree with your lifestyle, but you're still welcome to this group? Do Christians say to really proud, smarmy, arrogant people, we don't agree with your lifestyle, but you're welcome to this group? Do Christians say to hypocrites, we don't agree with your lifestyle, but you're welcome to this group? By and large, the answer is no, but we do say that very regularly to people who struggle with homosexuality, to gay Christians, to Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction. Now, before we move further in addressing this defeater, we need to concede one point, and that point is this. You might not like it, friends, but this isn't my first rodeo. I've been doing this for a while now, and the church has failed to love the gay community with the love of Jesus. Uh, Andy Stanley tells a story in his book, Deep and Wide, um, about growing up at First Baptist Church Atlanta. And this story is, as the way he relates it, kind of a, a Copernican moment in his own life as a pastor. And he talks about one morning on a Sunday at First Baptist Atlanta, there was a gay pride parade coming down Peachtree Street, right where First Baptist is in the heart of downtown Atlanta. And FBC Atlanta, and this is like in the you know early 80s, got church out early so that their people could all go out and picket the gay pride parade with signs that said, you're going to hell unless you repent, and we did whatever the signs you can imagine. You can imagine it in your eyes. And so they left church early, and everyone went out to picket the gay pride parade, and across the street, Stanley noticed another group of Christians giving water to the people as they walked on the parade. And he asks a question that I think is important for us to ask. And I want you to be honest as you ask this question, or as you hear me ask it. Which group do you think Jesus would have been a part of? What was the chief charge that people brought against Jesus by the conservative religious people? It was that he was a friend of sinners. He was a friend of sinners. He hung around with tax collectors and the impure. The scripture does not treat homosexuality as the unpardonable sin. It just doesn't. And homosexuality is not the only sin mentioned here by Jesus, nor anywhere else by Jesus. Homosexuality is one manifestation of the sexual brokenness that every single human being has within himself or herself. So I think a fair question for you, if you're a Christian, to ask is the question I've asked myself this week, and that's this. Do we see ourselves as in the same boat as gay people when it comes to our need for God's grace? And I think oftentimes in the church, the answer to that has been no. And so the first thing we must do in addressing this defeater is get our own house in order. Bruce Springsteen, one of my great heroes and not a bad theologian himself, um, in his song, The Land of Hope and Dreams, by the way, The Land of Hope and Dreams is a song about heaven and people on the way there. And here's what Springsteen sings. I'm not going there with this one. I did it with Let It Go. I'm going to hold back. Springsteen says this, This train carries saints and sinners. This train carries losers and winners. This train carries whores and gamblers. 
This train carries lost souls. Come on this train. You don't need no ticket. You just need to get on board. You just thank the Lord. Come get on board. The first and prime answer to the problem of sexuality is that we are all worse than we think, gay or straight. We are all desperately broken from the inside out. We are all in need. We're all in need of the rich grace of God. And we're all invited to receive his deep love right now through repentance and faith. The gospel is for the sexually broken, which is to say the gospel is not for people out there. The gospel is for us right here and right now. All of us are sexually broken. All of us are in the same boat. All of us need the grace of Jesus. Second, Jesus defines what marriage is, not us. Look at Matthew chapter 19. Here Jesus is engaging with the Pharisees again, and uh, they're asking Jesus here if a person can divorce his wife for any cause, which was common practice in that day. And what they're trying to do is catch Jesus in like a, in a gotcha moment. So that whichever answer Jesus gives is the wrong answer. It's sort of like if your wife asks you, do you think my sister is prettier than me? Don't go there. No good answer. You're wrong either way, right? Jesus' answer here, though, provides some of the most important teaching on the Bible, in the Bible, on marriage and divorce. And for our purposes today, it also provides teaching on the problem of sexuality. Listen to what Jesus says, Matthew 19. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, quoting from Genesis 2, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus here is quoting Genesis 2, the very beginning of the Bible, where marriage is instituted by God. And you have to get what he says. Jesus is saying here, you've got to follow his logic. The reason, the reason that people marry is because God made them male and female. Look at what he says. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And then, therefore, in light of that reality, marriage is instituted. Here's what Jesus is saying. Marriage is premised on God's creating mankind, male and female. Now, Jesus is not saying that all males and females have to get married. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying that we are only able to get married because we have been made male and female. So the definition of marriage, according to the scripture, is predicated on the fact that men and women, equally made in God's image, are different. So marriage, according to Jesus, is by definition between a man and a woman. Now that is, I know, incredibly countercultural. It's incredibly countercultural, but it's what Jesus very clearly says. The way God designed marriage and the way Jesus defines marriage means, it means that human beings will flourish when they fit into the design and the definition that God has given. That's the purpose of God's law. It's the purpose of the way he's ordered this world. His law is designed to help humans learn to live well, learn to function well. And when we are outside the law in all the various ways we find ourselves outside of God's law, we do not flourish. 
We do not flourish because we're outside of the way in which we were designed. And it's the same with marriage, Jesus says. Think about it this way. A couple of weeks ago, I was meeting with some friends in Southern California. And in case you didn't know, that's a very, very expensive place. Gas in Southern California was four and a half dollars. I thought that was just absurd. Four and a half dollars a gallon. And so imagine that as I was filling up my rental car, I decided, you know what? I refuse to pay this. I'm going to stick it to the man. Not doing 450 a gallon for gas. I'm going to fill my car with water. I'm going to fill my car. I could probably fill this whole thing for like two and a half dollars. I'm filling the car with water because I refuse to be a part of the oil complex that makes gas 450 a gallon. Now, why is that insanity? It's insanity because the car's not designed to run on water, obviously, right? And marriage is the same way. Marriage is designed to run in a particular way. It's designed to be a committed companionship between a man and a woman. And that is what will lead to flourishing. Now, by way of application, uh, Sam Alberry. Sam Alberry is a follower of Jesus who's a, a gay Christian. He's a same-sex attracted Christian. By the way, he was born that way. He was, when he was 14 years old, discovered that he was sexually attracted, not to girls, but to boys. And he's written and he's spoken very well about this topic. If you want to know some of his writings, I'm happy to recommend them to you after church. Even if what I just said makes you uncomfortable and nervous, read Sam Alberry. Okay? And here's what he says. He makes a brilliant point based on what Jesus says here in Matthew 19. He notes that our culture says, our, our culture says you are your sexuality. You are your sexuality, and your sexuality primarily is your feelings. And those feelings define who you are. When you are the most you is when you are living out your own sexual feelings. That's what is your the makeup of your sexual identity. That's, that's the key to being yourself. Okay, that's what the world says. And Alberry rightly points out that that is a woefully inadequate way of describing what a human being is. Jesus here is teaching that our sexual identity is not, and I know how radically countercultural again this is, but it's, it's not primarily defined by our feelings. Your sexual identity is found in your bodies. And the fact that God made you male or female. God doesn't make you opposite sex attracted and same sex attracted. That's not what defines your sexual identity. Your anatomy, to be somewhat frank, is what defines your sexual identity. Fundamental sexual identity is in being made male and female. And also, that is a part of your eternal identity. I was made a male. When I'm raised again to new life by faith in Jesus at the resurrection at the last day, I will be raised from the dead as a male. How do I know that? Because Jesus, when he came out of the grave on Easter Sunday, was a male still. So fundamentally, fundamental to our identity is the fact that God made us male and female. But my sexual feelings are not eternal. I wasn't born experiencing sexual feelings and in the new world, Jesus says elsewhere, I will not experience the sexual feelings I experience in this life, whether, by the way, whether hetero or homosexual. My, feeling, my sexual feelings are not eternal. And even in this life, if we're honest, they shift around. They're not the thing we should place our central identity in. That's the point. And I hope you can see that that's actually really good news for you. The world says it's not, but it's good news. Here's why. If your sexuality is your identity. If your sexuality is your identity, if your sexual feelings are your identity, then your sexuality is everything. 
And fulfilling your sexual desires is the key to being whole as a human. A culture that says you are your sexual feelings says that if you aren't sexually fulfilled, your life is not worth living. And there's great news here. And it's this. Jesus doesn't just restrict the design of sexual activity. He does undoubtedly restrict it. But that's not all he does. He also shows us that sex is not the key to fulfillment. Jesus never had sex. Jesus was celibate. And Jesus was the most fulfilled, most fully human man who ever lived. Sex is not the key to human fulfillment. What is then? Well, that's the final point I want to make. Uh, And I hope you feel the liberation it brings. The key to our real identity, the key to being the real you, is your connection with Jesus Christ, even when it costs us. So let's look at that third, okay? The cost of following Jesus The cost of following Jesus is infinitely worth it. Now, I have multiple gay friends who are attempting to faithfully follow Jesus. We've had that conversation on multiple occasions here at this church. They're same-sex attracted, but they're seeking to commit to a life of sexual fidelity and faithfulness, quorum Deo, before the face of God. And so for many same-sex attracted people, that means living a life of celibacy. But I've had many more conversations with same-sex attracted and gay people who say something to me like this. How can you possibly tell me that I cannot fulfill myself sexually? If that's what it means to be a Christian, then I am out. I'm out. Sam Alberry again, tells a story of a friend who was in a committed same-sex relationship. And one day they were having breakfast together, talking about these spiritual issues and these deep things, very personal things. And the man said to Sam Alberry, you know, this relationship I'm in with this other man is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. And you're telling me that I have to give that up? Why would anyone ever want to follow Jesus if that's what it costs? It's a fair question. In fact, that's a powerful and a provocative question. And I think Jesus goes a long way towards answering it in Mark 10. Peter says, Jesus... Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. In typical Peter, what he's really asking here is, Jesus, hey, listen, I've given a lot. Is this going to be worth it? Is this going to pay off? Is the ROI going to be good enough to merit me losing all that I've lost, Jesus, to follow you? And there's a lot to say here. Let me say two things about this, and then we're going to finish. Okay, first, Jesus' teaching tells us, first, that everyone... Everyone will have to lose something to follow Jesus. <laughs> Welcome to Christ Church. You're going to have to lose something to follow Jesus. There's no one who can follow Jesus without massive cost. That's true of same-sex attracted people and opposite-sex attracted people. It's true of all Christians. Jesus says elsewhere that anyone who wants to be his disciple must take up his what? Cross. A cross is the image of the life of a follower of Jesus, an instrument of torture. Our lives as Christians are to be cruciform. We will lose, in a sense, in following Christ. Jesus is very clear on that. And so regarding the problem of sexuality, what does that mean? It means that all Christians will have to say no to some of our most profoundly felt and deepest desires if we're to be his disciples. All Christians will have to say no to some of our most profoundly felt 
and deepest desires if we're to be his disciples. And if you've been a Christian for some time, you know how that feels. At some point in your lives, following Jesus is going to feel like he's taking everything away from you. It's going to feel like death. It's going to feel like he's killing you. So to my same-sex attracted and gay friends, it's not just you, if I can say so lovingly to you. It's not just you who will lose something you deeply want to follow Jesus. But it's all true believers. And I know that's hard. And I don't want to minimize the pain. But I believe Jesus teaches us that clearly. Secondly, we see, last thing, we see in these verses in Mark 10, the amazing paradox of the Christian life. And here's the amazing paradox of the Christian life. It is when we lose our lives. It is when we say no to ourselves that we become our real selves. Losing our lives is where we find our lives. Andrew Peterson, one of my favorite Christian musicians, says the only way to find your life is to lay your own life down. The only way to find your life is to lay your own life down. Jesus says that our denying ourselves doesn't make us less of who we really are. Rather, it makes, a, it makes us more of who we really are. It makes us more like Jesus, more connected to Jesus, more bound up in Jesus in faith. Now, how can that possibly be true? How can that be? That can only be true because of who Jesus really is. Think about it. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came down, was crucified and raised again, and has ascended into heaven, and will one day come back. Jesus Christ loves you. Jesus died for you. He rose from death for you. He ascended into heaven for you. You can trust someone who has done that. You can't possibly measure the goodness of someone who has done that. And Jesus says to Peter, and Jesus says to us, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands or sexual attraction or sexual desires for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold, not just in heaven, but now in this time, now in this time. The arithmetic of the kingdom of God is that all we give up to follow Jesus by faith in this life, difficult though it is, we will get back a hundredfold. A hundredfold in this life and in the next. Everything you've sacrificed because Jesus Christ is Lord, every moment in which you have taken up your cross in a painful and real way, Every time you've denied self for the glory of God and for your own ultimate good, in every single instance that has ever happened in your life, it is infinitely worth it. Because in those moments, you are being exactly what God really made you to be. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. The principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look, listen to him. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. 
The great martyr Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. All of us, all of us who are seeking to live a life of faith, all of us who are struggling with these doubts and defeaters are being asked by the king, are being asked by our Lord to give up what we really can't keep and to believe that in doing so, we will really gain something that we can never lose. Jesus is the bread of life. Your sexual feelings are not the bread of life, whether they're hetero or homo. Being in a committed relationship with another human is not the bread of life, whether it's a same-sex relationship or an opposite-sex relationship. The only true bread of life who will satisfy your hunger, both now and forever, is Jesus. Following Jesus is worth the cost. Not just worth it, barely, but infinitely worth it. He's calling us to lose our desires, that we may find deeper joy in Jesus himself. And that's really the only answer. The only answer to the problem of sexuality. Let's pray.